Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Lutz Fahnenstiel. He's the sporting director for St. Louis City. And in his days as a goalkeeper, he was the only player ever to play professionally on all six FIFA continents. We've had some great guests lately, including Jack Harrison, John Berman, and Brendan Aronson. I also encourage you to check out my new podcast series, American Prodigy, The Freddie Adu Story. All eight episodes are out, and you can binge all of them to your heart's content. Now, here's my interview with Lutz Fahnenstiel. Our guest now is Lutz Fahnenstiel. He was recently hired as the sporting director for St. Louis City, which begins play in MLS in 2023. The German-born Fahnenstiel is also perhaps the most interesting man in the world when it comes to soccer. I'm not kidding. Having been the first player ever to play professionally on all six FIFA continents in an adventure-filled career as a goalkeeper, his book, The Unstoppable Keeper, is fantastic. I have read it. After his playing career, Lutz went into management and was most recently the manager, managing director of sports at Fortuna Dusseldorf. You've also heard him a lot on television commentary. Lutz, it's great to have you on, my friend. Thanks for coming on the show. Nice to speak to you again, yes. <laughs> You're coming to me from St. Louis, and I, I definitely want to get into your fascinating life story in a little bit, but I want to start with St. Louis. The last time I saw you, you were in Dusseldorf. Why did you want to join St. Louis? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's to be honest, for me, uh, having spoken to the owners about the project, about the vision, uh, it was so exciting. It's a really special place. I think the, the history of St. Louis in soccer, as you know probably better than I do, is really fascinating. So there is a lot of soccer DNA here uh, in, the, in the community. And building a club from scratch, really starting at a, at a white piece of paper, is, is something special. So for me, uh, being a, a typical football head or, or soccer head, uh, you know, thinking and sleeping and dreaming soccer all day long, uh, I think that is exactly what I was looking for, to, to get all the experiences I had in the last 25, 30 years to really put into this this one very special project. It, it's really interesting. And, and I'm wondering, sometimes I'll see you tweet from things you're doing, uh, watching you know games in the area in St. Louis. What have you been working on since you arrived in St. Louis? Yeah, it's quite, it was quite a busy time. I mean, uh, COVID makes it a little bit more difficult, but uh, in the end of the day, I think we're really moving forward very well. I mean, building uh, and planning an infrastructure is a very important part. Uh, secondly, uh, you know, we want to build our whole philosophy on, on three big pillars, like very much community driven. Uh, that's one of the things the owners are really, really uh, uh, yeah, uh, motivated about to get the community very much involved, to go a little bit away from that uh, pay to play model to give really everybody an opportunity to play soccer. So uh, diversity and inclusion are these two beautiful words. And I really believe it that that can make a big difference here in the region. Uh, secondly, the academy. Um, I mean, I was spending a long, long time of my career in Hoffenheim where uh, academy football development is one of the most important things. And we probably managed there to have one of the best systems in Europe. Uh, so that is something which also we want to implement here. Very clear goal 
to have the best academy in North America. You know, you need to have big goals. If you're making it too easy, then it's uh, that's not. We need to challenge ourselves, and of course, the pro team coming up as well. So that extra year, uh, not starting in 2022, but starting in 2023, gives us a good time to focus even a little bit more on the community and on the academy. When do you plan to hire a coach for the professional team? Latest or normally we will bring him in um, early 2022. You know, I want him to be involved in the selection of players, in the building the profile of players. So it should be... Uh, a little bit comparable to LAFC, where Bob came in also on an earlier stage where the discussion between myself as a sporting director and the head coach should be ongoing. And I'm not really a big fan of making these rush decisions, bringing a coach in very late, just a few days or months or weeks before the MLS kicks off. I think that makes things very difficult and much more complicated. So to have a longer process in the player selection and the team building will help us a lot to work successfully. Now, I'm curious, you've come in from, uh, from Europe, where you've been in recent years, even though you had been in North America at certain points in your past. When you look to hire a head coach, are you thinking it's more likely that you would hire an American or someone from outside the United States? Very open-minded about that. Uh, I believe that you're having lots of coaching talent in the United States. Uh, one thing I definitely not want to is to, to create here a, a, a style or create a DNA which is all based on simply European knowledge. You know, I'm uh, extremely modern. I'm extremely international, <laughs> as we will talk later. So I don't see that as uh, just try to bring in uh, people from overseas because they know better. That's not the case. There is plenty of knowledgeable coaches here. There is good ac academy plans in place here in the United States. So we want not just focus on developing our own good players, also coaching development to have in a way our own St. Louis City AC coaching academy, coaching philosophy. This is something what we also working hard on. We started that already with Bernard Peters. As you also know, uh, you know, one of the top guys of the top dogs really in youth development worldwide who build everything up in Hoffenheim as well. So with him to have that coaching development system in place and give local coaches to, to grow in the ranks, to, to, to actually step up with the teams into the next higher role. This is something what we want to achieve. Now, you've managed teams in the Bundesliga uh, you have been at Hoffenheim for, for many years before that. Uh, the rules in MLS are kind of different than they are in the Bundesliga and in most places around the world. Are you worried that you'll ever get frustrated with some of these rules that MLS has that, that can make things frustrating for people? I think, again, that one year extra from 22 to 23 is, is very, very helpful. You know, I, I can do lots of onboarding with the league. We have lots of communication with the league. I can also talk to lots of my friends who are working in similar roles than I am, uh, which, which I know many guys who are working in the MLS since many years. So for me to pick up the phone and talk to Dave Casper or call Ernst Tanner or speak to, speak to John Thorrington, where I spent time with him in Huddersfield, it's a very easy thing to do. So catch up with the old guys from the past and also learning from them and getting a little bit things clarified is always a beautiful thing. So I think you actually kill two birds with one stone. So 
how does someone become the first person to play professionally on all six soccer playing continents? At what point did you decide that you wanted to do this in your playing career? Yeah, long, complicated story that I'm trying to, to make it as easy as possible. I, I really uh, was not aware that uh, I played on five continents because I never thought about it. And when I actually did play for the Vancouver Whitecaps, I, I got that call from my agent who said, actually, are you aware you played on, on five different FIFA confederations? Only one is missing, and that's South America. So, as you know, uh, Grant, it's not so easy for a European guy to play in South America. It's not really a, a, a place where there's lots of foreign players are playing. And I kind of, uh, yeah, just uh, try to try to get rid of it and said, you know, find a club for me in Brazil. I will be interested because that was my, my childhood dream. If not, I'm very happy here in Vancouver. Beautiful city, I really enjoyed. So I didn't take it serious. But the guy was very motivated and within a few days actually came back with a few options in Brazil. So talking to the wife, uh, you know, taking the kid out of the school again and, and, and really thinking about it. I said, well, I think uh, we have to do that. After all, I think it was the right decision because, uh, yeah, it, uh, it was something special, something which was not done after me. Uh, I don't think it will happen very soon again that a guy is doing it. Uh, so, yeah, I think it, it, it was, a, it was a, a good decision in the right moment of time. I have to admit, when I go to, say, your Wikipedia page, and you know every player has a Wikipedia page, there are very few, if any in the world, like yours, which lists every club that you have played at, managed at, the national teams. It's a long list, and... I'll probably post uh, a, a graphic of that list when I when I post this podcast. Like, how did this happen? Like, were you just an adventurous person? Like, did you not want to stay in Germany when you were young and growing up? You know, how did this get set in motion? This playing in so many countries, and, and how many countries have you been to over the years? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think the guy who takes care of a Wikipedia page, I don't know it. I think he's actually very busy and, and he really <laughs> enjoys spelling out uh, very interesting names of world football. Um, well, how did it happen? I mean, I think I had the same playing career and the same ideas and dreams like every other young player. You know, I managed to play in the youth national team in Germany, maybe got uh, a little bit too confident at some stages where uh, I, I got an offer to play for the second team of Bayern Munich. Uh, I, well, I said, no, I don't want to play for any second team. I want to be a pro. And, uh, and that somehow um, was the reason uh, that to, 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 become a, uh, to go overseas and become a traveler. So as I'm from Bavaria and we are known to be a little bit headstrong, my, uh, my, my official quote by then was, uh, I will sign for the first professional team who offers me. Well, it was a club from Malaysia and, <laughs> and, and after Bayern Munich and I didn't, I knew nothing about Malaysia, but I just went for it. It was a cool experience. I ended up a few months later already in the English Premier League to play again then in the second team for Wimbledon and Forest, which was actually, I could have stayed in Germany looking at, at that part then. And with the loan system in England, you know, getting used to that, um, it just got into this motion, which you, after a while, you can't stop anymore. And for me, I believe I was a traveler between two worlds. Uh, and I, I actually learned that quite 
late that I probably was not good enough to be a top goalkeeper in the top league. I would have been always like more like a second choice or I would be a, a top goalkeeper in a smaller league. And I somehow never wanted to accept any of the two. So I just <laughs> kept on switching back and forth. And that is why there is that many clubs. But also you have to say uh, some of the, the, the list becomes a little bit artificially long because I was actually six years under contract in New Zealand, but there was only six months of net playing time. And instead of sitting around and training, I said, guys, loan me out somewhere in the north of the world. So I went to, I went to Calgary, to Canada. I went to Norway. I went to England. So I was actually playing six years, nonstop, 12 months, up to 60, 70 games a year which was a great time, you know. I never had winter. I always had sunshine and, and I could tra train and play as much as I wanted. So it was six very, very uh, cool years where, where I played an unbelievable number of games. Let's take a quick break from our interview with Lutz Fahnenstiel and I'll ask you a question. Do you ever want to watch Spain's La Liga and get frustrated because it's not available on your cable or satellite system, or you have to overpay for an expensive streaming service? You should try a streaming service I use that I love. It's called Fanatis with a Z, and you can watch all the action from La Liga and other international leagues and tournaments live and on demand from your favorite device whether it's a mobile phone, a tablet, or directly on your TV with the Fanatis app. You can also watch the top leagues from France, Brazil, and Argentina. Fanatis features channels you know, like BN Sports and English and Spanish, Gold TV, and many more. And it costs as little as $7.99 a month. If you'd like to try Fanatis for yourself, you can get a free week-long trial by clicking on the link in the episode description, or by going to fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. One more time, that's fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. Thank you very much to Fanatis for sponsoring this episode. Fanatis, the world's largest stadium. It's interesting to me because I think one of the first times I came across you, I was doing a Google search about... Um, we were shooting videos in different about soccer in different parts of the world, and I was curious to see if there was any football soccer happening in Antarctica. And I did a Google search for like soccer Antarctica or football Antarctica, and that's when you popped up. At one point, you were interested, right, in in, do, in having a charity game in in Antarctica? Yeah, I'm still interested in that. Uh, you know, uh, so I'm I'm, I'm having a, my own charity, which is very big. It's called Global United FC, which is uh, uh, working a lot on uh, environmental issues, but also do a lot on Africa when it comes to education, HIV, hospitals, uh, orphanages, soup kitchens. So it became really big. We have around 850 players from all over the world, from Valderrama to uh, Tony Sané, uh, to Lota Mateus, uh, to Mendieta, to Karen Boe, uh, Sico, whoever you call it. Lots of guys involved from all over the world. And uh, yeah, so we said, you know, to really raise the awareness of all that issues, the best thing would do to play a game where nobody ever played proper soccer or proper football. So let's try to do it in Antarctica. Uh, but I'm telling you, it's not that easy with all the permissions and everything. And every time we were very close, there was something else happening. But we still 
didn't give up. We have lots of good partners. And um, I mean, sooner or later, I think uh, I will play on the seventh continent. Please invite me. I would love to come. I, I've always wanted to go to Antarctica. Might as well play a football match. I think it would be. I mean, I, I went there. Actually, I went there to look at the locations to play the wow, game. So, wow. I, so I went there in, uh, you know, it was not like in the deep Antarctica on the middle of the pole. But if you're flying from New Zealand, uh, it's not that far. So we came across King George Island, which is already an Antarctic island, which good opportunities to play soccer as well. So I was there. I visited a few of my penguin friends, and uh, and we looked around, and and it was a it was a, it was a nice place. So it was really really exciting, and I think uh, that's one of the the dreams I still have in my in my in my in my life. And you never know. Excellent. Where did you have the most fun in your playing career? Would you say? Depends on how you describe fun. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, when I was a young player, of course, you know, you, are, you have lots of different interests, but I was, very, I was very German when it comes to that part. So for me to be on the field or be on the training fields, there was always 100% and nothing less. So I was very much um, staying, staying out of trouble, uh, to be honest. But for me, the biggest fun time I had was really that time in Brazil. I was already with mid-30s, just broken this world record. And it just, you know, it was one of these moments because I'm a bit of a, a restless soul and I always like chasing something. And in, in that moment, I felt this five minutes of happiness. I remember that when I was like, okay, now I'm confirmed literally the only person ever played on six continents. And just when I got that feeling of being really, really happy, the opponent scored against me and all that feeling was gone again. So I only had five minutes of happiness. And since then, I'm, I'm still looking. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say and is the most unexpected place that you ended up playing, the most surprising location? Yeah, Albania was probably uh, one of the, the, the not so uh, normal choices. I remember I had an offer from an English championship club where it will be, well, would have been a tough fight to be number one again. I had at the same time an offer from a big Romanian club which played in the Champions League. And then I got this offer from an Albanian club which nobody really ever heard of, even though they, they, they played Euroleague and it's a big club in the country. And, you know, I think 99% of everybody would have said, choose the English club or the Romanian club. But there was again this feeling in my stomach which told me, go for the Albanian one. It is something special and experience you will never ever uh, uh, make again and going there playing in 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 a very special country with with with, with a really unique history having every home game in front of 25 30000 in a stadium where probably 15000 only fit in uh, having these weeks of madness if you winning you were carried out of the stadium and people literally loved you if you were losing well it could happen that a stone flew through the window at night so this extreme of of, of being happy and being not so happy during the week in albania it was a it was a great experience i made friends there for life you know i'm still actually following the team watching one of my friends from germany you also know him thomas predaric former national player mm -hmm. he took them over now as a head coach as well so that team lajnia skodra where my daughter was uh, the princess when we won the game in school, but she was the villain when we lost, is also an unforgettable story. There's actually a really nice new soccer stadium that they've built, a uh, national stadium in Albania I just saw pictures of recently. Um, your career 
was full of all sorts of adventures and misadventures. I, I remember from reading your book. In one game in England in 2002, you had a collision with a player and you stopped breathing three times with the game being abandoned in the end. You obviously survived. I'm, I'm very glad of that. What happened, though? Yeah, you know, never miss with Clayton Donaldson, which is one of the lightning fastest players ever playing in England. Uh, so it was like one of these boxing days, you know, people in England, that's what they really live for, that boxing day feeling. Uh, and yeah, 50-50 ball. I mean, I never was a, a scared goalkeeper, so I went for it with everything I could. Uh, the kid was a bit quicker than I was, and he, he basically poked the ball against me, but in the movement when he tried to jump over me, he somehow fell and fell with his knee right into my sternum. And this is, it's kind of like a boxer injury when your, your, your nerve system in the upper body completely switches off. My lungs collapsed. Yeah, and I just died. Um, and, uh, you know, well, I don't remember too much. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I saw a few things on TV and I was uh, uh, the physio, which was an older guy, kind of gave me mouth to mouth, which was definitely not nice, even though I don't remember. Uh, and also uh, I did some CPR, I think you call it, right? Yeah, and yeah, he, yeah. Got, he got me back. He got me back three times, but I always drifted away. And in the end, only when the ambulance came and they put me on the on the machine, I was uh, being stable. And after, I think, two and a half hours in coma, I woke up. I had the most natural reaction of a football goalkeeper. When I woke up, I said to the nurses, what's the score? Let me off. I need to play again. So the doctor mentioned that the game was cancelled, which also doesn't happen too often in England. And yeah, I stayed uh, for a night in hospital and I had a, a, a very small fracture on my, in, my, in my chest, but only a hairline fracture. And the next three days, the only thing I was thinking, how do I get back on the field? Because if I don't, I will be scared. My kind of aggressive playing style will be gone. So a little bit like these ski jumpers when they're having a bad accident, they're trying to jump immediately again to lose, mm -hmm. uh, to, be, to being scared. And then really seven days later, I was on the field again, where thinking back, now being a little bit wiser, it was an irresponsible decision uh, towards my, my family, also towards the fans, because they, they also were not too happy seeing me on that day. Uh, but I needed that. I did it. Uh, I played. And since then, yeah, I'm, I'm still as, uh, as good as it gets. I'm glad you're still with us. That's, that's a crazy story. Um, and then... You know, when you were playing in Singapore, and this is, you wrote about this extensively in your book, you were accused of, of match fixing, ended up in jail for three months, and then were cleared of the charges. How do you go about telling that story? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, I think it's always in everything how you're looking at the thing. So obviously it's the, the darkest story and the darkest three months of my life and it, you would never wish that to anybody, even to your biggest enemy. However, I'm, I'm a positive person and I'm trying to look at the positive things out, there, out of that. I mean, being at the wrong place at the wrong time, you know, is, is, is one of these moments and giving your opinion to a, a guy which was pretending to be a golfer, asking me uh, if we're going to win the next game and you do that, what is natural? I said three times in a period of like six months, yeah, of course, we're in good shape, we're going to win the next game. Uh, playing as one of the top teams against number 12 and number 14 at home, 
and uh, winning of course and, 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 and drawing another game was not really any big big surprises. But then the time what I had to go through to be in one of the hardest uh, prisons in the world, like sleeping on the floor, uh, you know, having no toilet, having no toilet paper, having no toothbrush, literally having nothing, and uh, have to witness and see how uh, people are on death row uh, really getting crazy. Uh, it was not necessarily uh, uh, like, a, like a holiday camp, uh, but it uh, somehow made me a better person. I think I knew what is really important in life. I also realized that football uh, is not everything. I realized that, that, that family, helping others, uh, in looking after others, uh, protecting others is, is, is sometimes more important than anything else. So yeah, um, it was hard. Um, it, it was, it was a, a process where I learned a lot about myself as well. But to stop being a, a spoiled footballer, I think was that outcome, thinking about nice shoes, and, and, and nice cars and what kind of suit do I wear tomorrow evening when I go for dinner uh, that just suddenly became so superficial and unimportant that uh, I decided to focus on the more beautiful things in life and I enjoy every moment. Yeah, I, it's interesting that I, I, you made that decision because some people would have been very bitter based on their experience in that situation and maybe I was wondering if at any point you told yourself that you had made the wrong decision by trying to be such a world traveler over the years. But it sounds like you didn't you didn't decide that. No, I mean, you know, the, the belief, uh, uh, believing in, in, in playing football again, actually kept my hopes uh, really alive uh, to to, to think about my family back home in Germany, uh, it kept my head uh, pretty straight as well. So I had goals I worked for. And uh, uh, that was one of the most things which, 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 which I kept. But having said that, I mean, a certain bitterness, of course, is always there. So meaning for me, I would definitely ever, never, ever, ever, ever travel back to Singapore uh, because I simply would be very, very angry inside and I don't want to be that angry anymore. So I just simply like uh, uh, decided that I will never ever go there again. However, I was since then I was in Malaysia and I was in Indonesia and I was in the neighboring countries, so no problem whatsoever. Just simply that one spot in the world, uh, I don't think that is for me. I believe that I was badly ill-treated, uh, like physically and mentally, and uh, that's something where like I had to deal with all by myself. And I think then it's also a, a decision for me, only for myself to make, that I don't want to be there ever again. I remember going to Cuba for the first time in my life in 2008 for a World Cup qualifier between the United States and Cuba. And what I did not know at the time was that you were on the coaching staff of the Cuban team, uh, which <laughs> which is very loose. I love that. Uh, what was that like coaching in Cuba under you know the time of Fidel Castro? Do you have any good stories about that time in Cuba? I have plenty. Um, I mean, number one, you know, we had, the head coach was all the German, so we did most of the preparation. We were not in Cuba. We spent eighty uh, percent in Germany and Austria. So I was still playing at this time as well. So I just struggled in between playing and coaching. And uh, I just really traveled back and forth for the games. So uh, the, the Cuban team 
hardly spent that one year of preparation in Cuba at all. So we were always in Europe and playing. For example, there's a really beautiful story. You know, St. Pauli, which like the Pirates, basically in the German Bundesliga or second Bundesliga, like a very special club with a great culture. Um, and, and, and they are very much related to Cuba. They, they think Cuba is cool. So we played that opening st- of the new stand in that stadium. It was a full stadium like uh, people loved it and, and after the game uh, our players went to the fans uh, not to applaud them but they sold them c- cigars <laughs> it was it was it was absolutely amazing and uh, and actually i ended up also buying a few cigars from my players and gave them away as presents because i knew i can support them when they're going back home but it was a very good atmosphere in the, in in that group Unfortunately, or fortunately, when you want to look at it, lots of these players, they, they ended up actually moving to America. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving is the wrong word. They managed to escape and now uh, went to America. But it was, a, it, was a, it was a nice group of players, great experience, and I remember their games against the States quite well. You have contacts everywhere around the world now due to your playing career. Has that helped you in what you do today as a sporting director? Very much. Uh, I mean, for me, you know, I, I really learned, uh, I would call that the that, that, that job of a sporting director by being for many, many years like the, the chief scout and, 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 and recruitment guy in, in Hoffenheim, where it kind of like the, the, the step uh, below that before you becoming like a, like a CEO or a sporting director or an executive sporting director, whatever. Uh, so that scouting part helped me a lot because I literally can call in any country always one or two guys which are very important in football and I'm sometimes just quicker in gathering information than others. So especially in, 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 in football uh, um, yeah, areas like in Africa or South America, uh, you know, Scandinavia, like, like where I also spend lots of time myself, you do have the good contacts which, uh, which also, you know, an agent not trying to sell you something but some genuine friend which you played with and you know very, very well will give you an honest, true opinion. And that is always a, a different approach. So it's, 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 it's helping each other out. And, uh, and that is like that network, also that network which got bigger through my charity uh, is always a big advantage because for me to find out if a player is quick, everybody can find it out. But if a player is quick in his mind and if he's a good family guy and if he's a nice person, and if he's well-educated, and if you have good friends or bad friends, that sometimes you only find out if you know the right people or if you go incognito like a secret agent in a hotel. I also like to do that, by the way. Uh, so this is like, I think, the full, the full spectrum of scouting is not just to see if a player is good on the field. You need to figure out what exactly he likes and he doesn't like and he does off the field, how he behaves in a group, in what kind of family surrounding he grew up, that's all very important parts to see if a player fits to a certain club. Very interesting stuff. I, you've done a lot of international feed broadcasts for the German League on television over the years. You've worked during World Cups for television in Germany. Uh, just looking at this season right now in Germany, I, I assume you're, you're still keeping up with what's happening in Germany. What has stood out to you this season in Germany? Well, I mean, that Union Berlin is, uh, you know, having a small budget, but uh, are very clever on the transfer market. Uh, good mix between young talents and very experienced older players uh, established themselves in the Bundesliga. It's, it's a great thing to see. 
I think that the Bundesliga is quite tight, or it was quite tight till two weeks ago. Uh, uh, was was interesting, but then again, the Bayern Munich syndrome broke through. And whenever you have the feeling that Bayern Munich gets into a bit of a, a bad spot because long season, no break, and I think it was very clear and very easy to 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 predict that they will have a week a week streak this season simply because what happened last season, and then. The other team simply can't use that match ball. And whenever they just about to close the gap, then they're also losing. And Leverkusen, Dortmund, uh, Leipzig, you know, they're all high-quality teams. I think they have the pedigree to really uh, try to go for the championship. But at the moment, somehow it's all by Munich. And I'm actually, I'm naturally from Bavaria, so I'm, I'm kind of like a born by Munich fan. But I'm, I'm very neutral when it comes to, to football in general, so I never had a team I crazily supported. But seeing now that my friend Hansi Flick is doing such a great job there as a manager, I worked for him in the German Football Association. We spent some time together in Hoffenheim. So we're still very close till today. And, uh, and, and seeing him taking over as an assistant coach before to become the head coach, having that unbelievable uh, run and, and really like, uh, you know, becoming one of the most wanted head coaches in the world. Uh, I tell you, I can't be happier because he's probably one of the nicest guys in professional football, very genuine, very honest, very hardworking and a specialist as well. And I think uh, he really deserves that. And so does Bayern Munich in the end of the day. Who do you think is the second best team in Germany? Well, I believe it's a, it's a tough one. I mean, we said Dortmund has lots of potential. Um, Leverkusen has uh, top young players. I think they're always dangerous. But overall, Leipzig is probably the team you have to watch out for. Again, uh, like the coach in Leipzig, Julian Nagelsmann, was a guy who was with me for many, many years in Hoffenheim. Like we worked together. Uh, we're still good friends till today. So, so I saw his development from being an under-15 coach, being an assistant coach becoming an under-19 head coach, becoming the youngest Bundesliga coach ever in Bundesliga history, uh, bringing Hoffenheim to the Champions League and now taking the next step to see that development and knowing that he's a, for me, honestly, Grant, he's a, he's a, he's a genius. Seeing that, that's what I believe probably Leipzig is the, the second best team because they have the best coach. Looking ahead to MLS, you, you still have some time before your team, your professional team starts playing. What are you most curious about with MLS and working in this league? What are you looking forward to learning about working in this league? Well, it's a different setup. I mean, the franchise uh, system is different, uh, like, like I know it from the Bundesliga. Um, uh, also, to see here that you're having a direct contact, like the owners or your, your direct contact you speak to in Germany, uh, it's mostly uh, people's clubs, you know. Uh, that's one of the big differences to, to the rest of the world still today. Um, so different approach. Um, I mean, for me to see the growth of soccer in the United States, uh, having worked myself and took uh, Zach Steffen from Man City to Düsseldorf last year, uh, show me how much potential there is also in, in young players. Uh, the league is getting better. The teams are moving away from just bringing older big names and going to bring younger, hungry guys. That's also a route where I'm completely convinced we will go for as well. Uh, so seeing that the league is just simply getting better, more competitive, um, is a great thing. For me also, the, the vision 2026, the World Cup, I believe football will start to 
boom massively between 2023 to 2025. That's exactly when we're coming in there. So we really want to want to take that that hype and and, 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 and and be successful. And yeah, I think as you can hear, I'm extremely excited to be over here. It, it, we want to build something special. And and yeah, I mean, I have played here myself. I, I know I know that the, the playing culture. Um, I, I, I saw extreme imp improvement since since I played here. It's like let me think, 2009. So it's already oh, and I'm getting old. Already 11 11 years ago, and and it just so many things have changed. So I really believe in the in in the MLS, and uh, yeah, uh, you know, just trying to trying to to also make a little difference here. Uh, try to to get uh, my experience into the mind of younger players, of younger coaches, help them out, and. Uh, That's what I'm aiming for, and that's why I'm happy to be here. Lutz von Steel is the sporting director for St. Louis City SC, which begins play in MLS in 2023. His book is The Unstoppable Keeper. You should read it. It's an amazing story about an adventurous career in the soccer world. We're really excited to have you part of our American soccer community, Lutz. Thanks so much for joining me. It was a pleasure, Grant. Uh, give me a shout again whenever you feel like it. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Lutz Feinenstiel, as well as producer Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time. Mm -hmm.